Today I want to talk about kind of some meta stuff. We're just going to zoom out for a second. Um, I think it's sometimes really important to zoom out. I want to talk about the gospel. I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to talk about how community fits in all of that. So Mark chapter 1, verse uh, 15. This is Jesus when he first begins uh, his ministry in, in, in and around the region of the Galilee. It says in John uh, verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says this, the time has come, Christ says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news or repent and believe, some of your translations say, the gospel. This is uh, literally Christ's word. Let's pray. Lord, I, um, I just want to pray for those that are just kind of processing the announcement about uh, night gathering and morning gatherings and all of that. And I just pray as we're processing this, we process it uh, with you and with our mind um, clearly here in this moment, because I believe that what you have for our church in this community is really important, maybe more important than I ever realized um, what you're doing in and through this church uh, in our city and beyond is really important. And I pray that you would continue to call men and women to this mission uh, for such a time as this um, so that we can be a light to the city. We want to serve the city well, Lord. We want to represent uh, the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in this city. And we want to do that as a community. We want to do that with love and grace and truth and peace um, and really, really, really good rhythms that don't just focus on us but point out to our city. And we're looking forward to all of that stuff. Um, but Help us to zoom out here and get a, get a clear picture of what the gospel is and what your kingdom is doing in this world. In the strong name of Christ, amen. Community is dangerous. Community is a very dangerous thing. It's dangerous because when we start trying to live into authentic community, as we've done this last year, we are faced with how much we idolize our, our own ideas of freedom. We often think freedom is this. Freedom for us, for, we might not verbalize it this way, but uh, this is, this is kind of how we think about freedom. Freedom equals being free to choose how I want to live. In the church, we say things like, God told me this. Or if, you don't part, if you're not part of the church, you say things like, I, 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 I kind of feel like this. Maybe if you're in the church, you say feel like this too, but a lot of times you just blame it on God. We're like, well, no, God told me this. Oh, well, we can't really argue with God, so okay, go do your thing. And so we think freedom is choo like free to choose like how we want to live. If we're in the church, we're like, well, God told me to do this, that sort of thing. And we want others happy that I'm living my truth. We want to choose what we want to do. And we want everyone in our community to be so happy that we're just doing our thing, that we're living our truth. And so as we get close to one another, we start bumping into one another's personal will. We start bumping into one another's feelings. We start bumping into one another's expectations. We start bumping into another person's feedback of us. Community is dangerous because in community is when we start finding out what another person's definition of community really is. We're in community with someone and they're like, no, I thought community was being there for me. No, I see community as fr your friendship. Well, I see community as that you supporting me or you challenging me. And everyone has these different ideas of what community is. And the, and the real problem is, next slide on the screen, the real problem is we don't share a common story. 
and we don't share corresponding judgments in community about what is true, good, and beautiful. And this is the real, like, as I've been uh, in all sorts of debates, arguments, heart-wrenching conversations over the last year, I find this to be the, the, the thing that is the hardest part. It's like you and I don't share a common idea of what is true or even what is good or what is beautiful. What you think is beautiful is not what I think is beautiful. What you think is true or your truth is not what I think is my truth or true. Or what is good to you is not good to me. And because we don't share a common story of what is true, good, and beautiful, we don't have real and authentic community. What we have is a crowd of people. We have a crowd. We typically have a crowd of people to do life with in San Francisco, and crowds are historically and intrinsically dangerous. Crowds are what, ha- what had Jesus killed. Crowds are what started a riot when the gospel was spreading in Ephesus. Crowds are what create cancel culture on social media. But the very definition of being in the community of Jesus is to share a common story of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And what is that for Jesus' community? For the community of Christ, what is true, good, and beautiful? And the answer is the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God. What is true, good, and beautiful, full stop, in the Christian community is the gospel of Jesus is true, good, and beautiful, and the kingdom of God that Christ brings is true, good, and beautiful. That, is, that's our, that should be our working definition. Everything that springs from there is what we are to think of as true, good, and beautiful. But what is the gospel? This might seem basic, but there are all kinds of different opinions and definitions of 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 what the gospel is. You might have an idea of what the gospel is right now floating in your mind when I ask, what is the gospel? If you're new to the way of Jesus, you might have your own definition of what is the gospel. To answer that question, I want to play a video from our friends at the Bible Project. They are amazing, if you don't know, if you're like trying to learn the scriptures and really solid theology and doctrine Uh, and you like to use the internet, you're like, I want to find all of my doctrine on the internet. If that's you, don't go anywhere else but the Bible Project, okay? Um, Here's probably the best four-minute definition I've ever seen of the gospel, and here it is. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, biser is what we might call national news or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger biser that his army was victorious in battle, that means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. 
This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. Okay, yeah. So that is the gospel. The best definition I can give you of the gospel is this. The gospel is the announcement and the availability of the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus. It's the announcement. What Jesus does is announces it. And he makes it available. He makes the kingdom of God available through the work of Jesus. Okay? So that's what the gospel is. It's the announcement and availability of the kingdom of God through Jesus. But here's another question. What is the kingdom of God? That was used all over in the video. Every time you see and hear people write and talk about the gospel, the kingdom of God will come very near after that. They'll talk about the gospel and the kingdom of God. Jesus did the same thing. I have come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's where God's will is done. Wherever 
God's will is completely done. That is his kingdom, right? And the scriptures, we also call this place heaven. This is why in Jesus' great prayer, it goes like this. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So what, what that means is that heaven is a place where God's will is done all the time. May that come to earth. May God's will, may his rule, may what he wants, he gets, may that come on earth. That is not always the case. Actually, we are in a world worth competing idols and competing gods and competing lords. Now, he is, God is king of kings and lord of lords, but that kingdom comes in through his church. That's how he's decided to do it. He's coming through the weakness of people. The Bible, the, 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 the New Testament will go on to teach through the, the, the flesh of people who've given their lives over to God. So the rule of God is where the kingdom of God is. Heaven is where God's will is done, and that space is called the kingdom. The kingdom and heaven are almost synonymous terms. Matthew flips them around a little bit in his gospel. So Jesus says this at the beginning of his ministry. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, meaning the kingdom of God has come near in him, in Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. So the question is, what are the characteristics of this gospel? When the gospel is preached and proclaimed, what begins to happen? When the kingdom of God is made available, what follows from that? So let's keep reading in Matthew, very next verse, Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Mark 16. Very next scripture in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will, I'll send you out to fish for people, which was like an idiom, meaning Christ was going to make them into teachers and rabbis themselves because rabbis were people who fished for people. I'm going to make you like me. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when they had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Now, when I read this section in the, the Bible and the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, both record this like Jesus calling followers to himself. I always get the scene from, uh, this might be really irreverent, but the scene from Dumb and Dumber um, where Lloyd and Harry are driving and they see that family on the side of the road. Like there's a family who wants to ride. And they're like, pick them up. Like they're just picking everyone up, right? This is Jesus when he starts his ministry. It's like the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Hey, you follow me. Hey, you pick up. He's just picking everyone up. Before you know, he has hundreds of followers, right? He has 12 close ones, but hundreds of followers, not if, if not thousands of followers. Now, here's the point. This is exactly what Jesus does. When the kingdom comes, he calls people into his atmosphere. He calls people into the kingdom's, kingdom's reign. He makes these new people a family who begin to live under the rules of his kingdom. So when you're following Jesus, you live under his rules. You live under rules that are uh, rules of love. So when the disciples were following Jesus, there's all these, quote, laws, ceremonial laws that they thought Jesus was breaking. And the disciples were like, yeah, we're kind of breaking him, but he's the king now. And so what he says, if we're eating this wheat on Sabbath, we're eating this wheat on Sabbath because he's the king. Like we're following this king. We're not fasting because he's not fasting. He's the king. He's telling us what to do. See, when you live under Jesus' kingdom, you follow his rule. This is exactly what he calls people into his rule together. Now, 
we live in a, you might, you might be waiting for this. Um, you, we live in this really crazy cultural moment right now where one of the most um, talented and popular artists has come out with a gospel album. And it's just so weird, you guys. This is so weird. I don't know how to think about it. I'm really tripping on it still. And I thought it was a gospel album. Like, yeah, quote gospel, kind of like the last album was a quote life of the Apostle Paul. But like, wait, Apostle Paul said none of this stuff. Um, that sort of thing, right? Um, but it's like legitimate Christian gospel album. And I don't know what to make of it. So we're in this weird culture moment. I'm talking about Kanye, if you don't know that by now. Um, if you're asking the person next to you, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and so before that, he's doing these like gospel services that people are like sending me these articles, like he's trying to plant a church and all this other stuff. And um, so I have a good friend of mine who's a pastor who recently sat down with him and spent time with him um, to talk about uh, this Sunday service thing that he has going on. So my friend sits down with him and he knows that my friend's a pastor. That's why they wanted to meet. And my friends asked some point blank when they started, like, hey, listen, I want to know this. What is the gospel to you? That's really important because you're doing these, quote, gospel services. What is the gospel? And my friend says to me, now I wasn't there, which is why this friend of mine is now a former friend of mine, by the way. Um, so this uh, former friend of mine um, says that, uh, that he answers with like, like straight up the gospel. Like he answered the gospel. He answered like almost like the gospel project Bible video, like that. He's like talking about Jesus' rule and reign like that. And then he says at the end, because I believe this. Like, okay, okay. So here's the next question then. What is the church? And he turned to my friend and he said, I mean, I think this is a really important to ask the patron saint of the millennial generation, like it or not, right? This is very important to ask. Um, when millennials are leaving the church in droves, we're told by all the data. What is the church? And he says to my friend, I don't know, man. That's why you're here. I don't know what the church is. That's why I asked you to come over. And the answer to that question, what is the church, is, and my friend answered correctly, of course, because he's really wicked smart and a really great pastor. The answer, what is the church, is indistinguishable from the first question. What is the gospel? The church is a community who lives under the rule of the gospel together. That's what the church is. The church is a community that Jesus calls into his rule and his reign and his government. It's like a city within a city. Think of it like a city within a city. Like we live in the city of San Francisco, but the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the community, the church lives inside a different government than the government. It lives within like a different city within a city, not in a church bubble. We, it's almost impossible to live in a church bubble in San Francisco. But we live like a city within a city, like a kingdom within the kingdom of SF or the kingdom of the United States. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Let me show you how this worked out in the very, very first sermon uh, as the church began. Acts chapter 2, this is right after Pentecost or when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and basically birthed the church. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41. Peter preaches his long, amazing sermon, and this is how he ends his sermon. This is the altar call moment. This is the ministry call right here. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. This is how he ended it. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the way Peter says it is like we live in a generation, we live in a culture, we live in a nation that's corrupt. Now it might not look corrupt. Sometimes it looks corrupt. Sometimes it looks beautiful, but it's 
according to God, it's a corrupt thing. It's passing away. Save yourselves from that and come inside the church and be saved. This is where you get the salvation language from right here. You're saved from this corrupt generation into the kingdom of God. That's why when it defines converts, it says, and people were added to the church that day. It didn't say that many people became Christian that day. It doesn't use that language. It says that many people were added to the church that day. That means you've come outside of this corrupt generation and you moved inside of the church. And the church is where Christ reigns, rules, his kingdom rules, okay? So this is exactly what happens here in Acts 2.41. But look, if we keep reading in 2.42, we see that this we see like the, 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 the ethics and the laws uh, that govern this new community. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to, the pr- and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common and they sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, so this is how they live under the rule of God by the power of the gospel. This is how they live under the kingdom of God as a church. They live devoted to learning the sacred texts of the apostles and the teachers. Like they sit and they learn doctrine together. They devoted themselves to fellowship and the meals and to prayer. So they're meeting together, praying and, ha- and celebrating communion often. They, they, they had commonality that included providing for one another, even if that meant selling off some of their own stuff to provide for each other. Do you see, this is a whole different government than the government that was going on around them at the time. And this is exactly what the church, this is exactly what community is in the church. It's living under the rule of Christ. But the question now is, why doesn't the church look like this as much? I mean, there are pockets of it. We see it. I see it in this church from here, from time to time. But by and large, the church doesn't live like this. Why not? Why don't we experience this? Well, go back to to Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Let's just, read, just keep reading in Mark a, a, f- a few stories, a couple stories, I should say. Look at verse 21. Right after Jesus calls his disciples, we're just going to continue reading, very next verse. And they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue was possessed by an impure spirit and cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is a demon. There's a demon in this man, and it caused him to cry out to Christ. And Jesus looks at this man and says, be quiet, Jesus said. And he starts speaking to the demon, and he says, you come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Shrek? Shriek? Shrek. I don't know, whatever that is, right? The people were all so amazed, and they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. Now, this is the very first lesson we learn about Jesus' reign in the kingdom of God. 
It's the very first story. Mark is the very first gospel to be written. Um, the other gospels were kind of based on the book of Mark, okay? So the very first story that Mark teaches after Jesus comes into his kingdom and is kind of anointed and declared king and says the kingdom of God is, has come near, the first thing that he does is that he casts out a demon and he shows the first lesson that we learn is a lesson in his authority. That's the first lesson we learn. We learn that Jesus has ultimate authority in this kingdom. He has authority to teach with authority, meaning he taught with like, he taught with the stuff behind him. He taught, his words had power. He taught and demons listened to him. When he taught, people listened to him. When he taught, people snapped to attention. When he taught, there was something going on resonant in people's like beings. Like, that's true. I'm following that. The, cow, the crowds were like, okay, He's a good teacher, a new teaching, but he teaches with authority. We've never seen anything like this. We were at the men's retreat this weekend. And the very first night, Al Abdul is leading our retreat, and he did an amazing job. The very first night, he gets up and he says, um, okay, first thing, we're going to start with expectations. And he puts a slide on the screen. He's like, I have five expectations of you men uh, at, the, at, at this retreat. And I forget all five of them. I did them all, but I, I forget all five. Um, but... It's something like turn off, your, turn off your phone during all meetings. Your phone's off. Um, you're on time for every single meeting. On time. You're here as soon as the doors open. And you're all in. You're, you're all in for every single thing that we do all weekend. No matter what it is, you're all in with your, with your partner. We're kind of partnered up. And uh, so we're, break up in groups. We had break, and look at your group leader. And your group leader is going to look you in the eye and ask you, do you agree with this? So we all did that. We all broke up. Group leader looked at everyone. Do you, do you have any reason not to agree with this? And if you do, tell your group leader and talk it out. Of course, our group just said, we agree, we agree. We don't so at, when that time was done, Al said, if you agree with these things, would you stand up? I think, I mean, from what I can see, everyone stood up. Um, and, uh, and Al said, look around. These are the commitments you made to each other. Sit down. Okay, we went on with the night. It was an amazing night. Breakfast in the morning, session, uh, Saturday morning, session one. Al goes, okay. If you broke one of these commitments over the last uh, eight hours or 10 hours or since last meeting, would you stand up? If you broke one of these commitments. And uh, half the room stood. <laughs> Whoa, someone said, well, I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised by this, okay? Um, <laughs> someone said, well. Um, and so uh, half the room stands. And Al says, if you're a partner with one of the men who stand, you stand too. And so another, like, you know, third of the room stands. So pretty much everyone's standing. And, um, and Al looks at them and says, Broken commitments are really a, a, a cry for help. When we break our commitments, we're really crying out for something. Something's going on. We had this like processing time and all this stuff at that moment. And then what I saw though in this moment was that men that I was around there, and I think this is us in general, we long for gentle and true authority in our lives. We long for someone to say, I'm going to ask you to do something and I want you to, I want you to only agree if you want to agree. I agree. And I'm going to hold you accountable to what you said you would do. And I'm going to follow up with you tomorrow morning. Like we long for this in our lives. I think that we're exhausted of trying to have to figure out everything for ourselves and our DIY culture. We, we figure everything out for ourselves, our own religion, our own philosophy, what we want to do raising kids, what we want to do with our cult. We have to figure out everything for ourselves and we are exhausted. 
We're our own philosophers because we pick and choose from different philosophies of life. So we're our own philosophers, we're our own doctors because we look up WebMD. We look at one doctor, like, I don't like your opinion, I'm going to go to another doctor. I, don't, I want the ultimate authority doctor, I, you, whatever. And this is what we do and we're exhausted. Our existential angst leaves us lost in the cosmos. And I think we in the culture are starting to realize that we can't be freed from our own demons by our own authority. We have demons. Like, we're, we're stuck in patterns. We have, whether they are real, true, demonic demons or our own, quote, demons, and we can't get over them in our own authority. Brene Brown can't do it, though she's amazing. <laughs> Ronald Roheiser can't do it, though I quote him every Sunday. Oprah can't do it in her super soul podcast, whatever. Only Jesus has this kind of authority to free us from our demons. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. In the book of Judges in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a really kind of a short-ish book in the Old Testament. Um, this is not a book of exemplars. You don't like read these stories to your kids and say, we want you to be like Samson because it doesn't end well for Samson, right? So if you do that with that book, just stop doing that. It's not really good. This book is not a book of exemplars like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. It's not about that. The actual the whole point of the book of Judges is a diagnosis to the problem that Israel has and the fact that, and a phrase repeated over and over and over again, in those days Israel had no king. It's repeated over and over and over again in the book. And actually this is how the book ends. This is the very last sentence of the book. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what they saw fit. This was the problem. This is why Judges is a bloodbath. This is why Judges is a horrific, immoral book. It's because of this sentence right here. They had no king, and everyone did what they saw fit. I mean, this is the diagnosis of our day. No ruler, no king, no authority. We all do what we want to do. We choose what we want. We choose what political thing. We choose what biblical thing. We, choose. we all follow different things. We can be reading the same text in the Bible, the same words of Jesus, and you can say something like this. Well, I just don't see it that way. What? Who makes you the authority? Who makes me the authority? Jesus is the authority. This is what he says. And so we have no ultimate authority. And this community of the gospel kingdom, Jesus, not even me as a pastor representative of Jesus, Jesus has the authority. See, we're never given the definition of church in the Bible. Not truly. We're only given metaphors. The metaphors of the church are this. The metaphor is the church is a body and Jesus is the head. The church is a building and Christ is the chief cornerstone. The church is a kingdom of priests, and Christ is the king. Are you getting the point? The metaphors about Christ are this. Christ is the authority. He is the authority. He's the chief cornerstone, which the whole foundation is aligned to, which means the whole building is built on it. He's the, he's the head of the body, which he makes the, the whole body function. Christ is the authority. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Let's skip down to verse 40. One last story before we close. A man with leprosy came to Christ, came to Jesus, and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away and at once 
with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came close to him from everywhere. Okay. Leprosy. In this context, leprosy encompassed a wide variety of chronic skin diseases. This disease was so horrific that around it were all this superstition and all this fear. They treated lepers in this time like zombies, like real life zombies. Lepers at the time of Jesus were called by rabbis the living dead. And to heal a leper was as hard as raising the dead. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 13 about lepers. The person with such an infectious disease must, be, uh, must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, uh, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he, is, he has the infection and he remains unclean, he must live alone, he must live outside the camp. Leprosy was contagious. Horrible to look at and wasn't just skin deep but affected down to the nervous system, even down to, the, to your bones. Leprosy wasn't just an illness in Jesus' day, it was a sentence. The purpose was to protect the health of the community from infection so that an outbreak wouldn't happen. But this left a leper as a victim far more than the horrible and incurable skin disease. The social consequences of leprosy were the loss of their name, their occupation, their habits, their family, and even their worshiping community. And whenever a leper did show themselves in public, they had to make this huge scene to let everyone know where they were to run and hide from them. Human touch was gone from a leper. Think about that for just a second. Not able to touch anyone you love. No one's able to touch you. Not able to smell your kids. You're not able to hold your baby. You're not able to hug your mom. You're not able to shake anyone's hand. Not being able to feel human affection or human touch. Other sicknesses and illnesses had to be healed, but leprosy had to be cleansed. It was that bad. And look at what this leper does. He breaks every law and custom on what he hears Jesus is capable of doing. He healed a demoniac. He healed someone sick. Just before that, he heals a, a sick person. If this man could cast out demons, if this man could heal the sick, why can't he heal me? At this point in Mark's story, Jesus hasn't healed a leper yet. I mean, it's kind of a risk to try to heal a leper. This man's not just sick with a fever or like, you know, whatever, chickenpox. He's unclean. He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Not if you can, you can make me clean, but if you will, you can make me clean. This leper has faith that Jesus has all the ability, but he questions whether Jesus is willing to heal him. Like, I'm sure that you can heal me. I don't know if you really want to heal me. And this makes Jesus angry. This makes Jesus really angry. He's like, what? he's indignant. He's like, Wait, what? What do you mean if I'm willing? Jesus is so moved with pity, so moved with compassion. He doesn't just heal. Do you know Jesus can heal? Like he heals in all kinds of funny ways. He can heal in any way he wanted to. He can snap his finger. He can just do, a, I don't know. He can just do whatever he wants, right? To heal. And he does all these kind of weird things. But this is what he does to the leper. He touches him. I don't know how long it's been since this leper's been touched. No one's allowed to touch him. Jesus touches him and he says, I'm willing, be clean. I'm, I'm willing to heal you. I'm willing to touch you. I'm willing to make you clean. This leper thought he only needed to be cleansed, but Jesus knew he, had to do, he actually needed to be touched. 
His disease was way more than skin deep. It was psychological. It was emotional. And Jesus was so willing to go there. So here's the thing that characterizes the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God in this church community. Everyone has access. Every single one of you has access into this kingdom. No matter how unclean the culture calls you or thinks you are. No matter how canceled it says you are. No matter how and whatever circle you run in, it says you're not good enough for this circle. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, there's access into this kingdom. And that's why this kingdom is rich in compassion and mercy. If you've wronged anyone in this church community and have asked for forgiveness, there is compassion and mercy here. Complete compassion and mercy. And the reason why there's compassion and mercy here is because the king says there is. Because the king shows that there is. King Jesus has shown that this is what dictates. He's the authority, by the way. And if he says a leper can come into this community, a leper can come into this community. Even though this leper has like a, like a loose, loose mouth, right? He just goes and just says, I have one thing. One thing. You have one job. Don't tell anyone. He's like, okay, tell everyone. No, no, no. Don't tell anyone, right? This, and he, Jesus doesn't care. Like he, he like, I, I know, I mean, I, I kind of think Jesus kind of probably knows this guy can't contain this, but he's like, I'm going to tell you anyways, and you're probably not going to do this, but you're welcome here. Rufus Jones, a Quaker theologian, um, has said, uh, there is a type of life presented in the Gospels, which when, appear, when it appears, seems to be already the kingdom of God. A type of life in which love is supreme, the supreme thing and motive, in which the spirit of forgiveness has come to ripeness, and which aims to do the will of God on earth as it is done in heaven. Insofar as the church carries on and incarnates that commission, it becomes the sower of the seeds of the kingdom of God and the bearer of the new order for human society. I mean, this is what we're called to. We are called to be the community of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So whatever needs to be realigned in this building to the chief cornerstone, allow it to be realigned now. Anything that needs to, that needs to function as the head says that we are to function as his, as his body, let's obey now. Anything that we need to submit to into the rule of the king, let us submit now. Would you stand with me as we pray? This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.